So I, I guess that is a big assumption that leaders care for the individual development of their, their team members. Above and beyond, which I think is speaking about working the wrong way, I think what you described, just that's not how corporate is, is built. We, we tend to manage to the lowest common denominator. So, Welcome to 33 Tangents, a weekly podcast featuring a rotating panel of co-hosts that all work together in the same company, but live in different areas of the world. The discussions cover a wide variety of topics from digital analytics to working remotely to current happenings in business and technology. Our regular day-to-day conversations often go off in various directions, and the goal of this podcast is to share our ideas and find new ways to engage with others. light here that has enough reflection off of white to kind of fill in. Um, but actually, I don't have any lighting set up you look at all right now. completely crisp. I look totally washed out. Yeah, you've got a lot of backlighting. Yeah, well, I got, this, I got a little window back there. Yeah. Yeah, but I'm, I'm actually... So I haven't hooked this up, but I was on these um, these Zooms and stuff using the ATEM, and I had my uh, my my like little DSLR hooked up to it and the video quality, like all the background was beautifully bokeh out and all this stuff. And people were like, what are you using what? for your video? <laughs> yeah, like so funny. Yep. Awesome. All right. And what are, what are, what are you rocking in? the, we are jumped in. What are you rocking the oh, road mic or what? Uh, what this is a, a Neumann 103. Okay. So yeah, this is a good little vocal mic, but I don't have the vocals to support the mic. I just have the mic. I try, but you can do that uh, in post processing. Yeah, yeah. Throw the uh, auto tune on it and get a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I, I did that when I did that Mother's Day video for Whitney, which I'm not That's sure great. you've seen, but oh, I that saw was it. fun. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's some it. heavy auto tune on that one. Uh, before yeah, we you, jump, you've just got the late night DJ voice going at the moment. Yeah, he does. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. I've got and the lighting. Welcome I, to I can't. Smooth I'm a, jazz. I, I can't get over the lighting. <laughs> the lighting is phenomenal. No, I'm, I'm jealous, and I'm going to have to work on some kind of new studio setup. But hopefully, well, my hopefully my audio is better this week. Yeah, yours is good, and I'm actually ordering a couple things that you might want to take a look at that are super cost effective. So the Elgato site that the the guys that make Stream Deck, that little button thing that can do all the stuff for streamers on Twitch and whatnot. Oh yeah, they actually yeah. make two little LED lights um, that are like Ooh. this big. And they mount, they clip to your desk and they mount to your desk in the same mounting arm. You can actually put an extension and mount a camera on oh, and they make everything and it's all really well priced and good stuff. So that's what I'm going to order this weekend. Very cool. All right. Okay. Well, let's cool. do this. Yeah. We, uh, we, we got the fun little chat out of the, out of the way there. Um, let's have a not fun chat now. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, like the, the the fun little the fun little shooting shit. The off, the off topic. The, yeah, yeah. The someone off someone topic. someone gave us a recommend. Uh, I think it was on Twitter. Um, someone said, "You you guys are too serious all the time. You need to have more fun on your podcast." So all right, we'll do our best. Apparently, apparently, we're too serious all the time. Yeah. So <laughs> we need to have well, a bit more fun here. Well, actually, Jason, thank you. That that, that gives me my segue again for this week. Um, Happy to help. So um, this week we're we're joined um, by returning guest uh, Evan Lapointe, and uh, I reached out to Evan after I saw some pictures he had posted recently. So you want to talk about having fun and not being so serious? You know, I thought it was a great topic. You know, Jason, we've talked recently a lot about remote work, but l- let's talk a bit about you know working remotely and and the freedom it brings you, and then. Because I know sometimes for, for me, especially, I don't take it nearly as much advantage of it as, as I could, as I should. Um, I know I fall into the habit of getting tied to my desk just to you know, get focused in on, on work. So, um, Jason, you recently took your son up to school and then spent a week traveling there. Evan, you've been on the road. So one of the things I want to talk about is, is, is the freedoms that remote work can give you. Um, some of the fun things you're, you're able to do with it um, and how people can get out of that, that problem that 
a lot of remote workers fall into is, is getting caught up in work and then not being able to take advantage of it. So to get us started, Evan, why, why don't you uh, give us an update on what you've been up to lately and some of the adventures you've been on? Yeah, I mean, I, I've had the, I mean, the, the, the punchline, the headline here is I ended up buying an Airstream back in June. Um, so we'll, we'll, we won't bury the story. Uh, you know, that's, that was a big thing for me. Cause I, I've dreamed about owning one of those things for so long. And, um, the secret that I wasn't aware of is that they put these things on 20 year notes. So it's like, here you are looking at the price tag of one of these things thinking, oh my gosh, there's no way I could ever do that. And then I realized like, oh my gosh, these things are like, you know, it's like one of those things where they like fund a child for $3 a day. And I was like, I can, I could do that, but I could also fund my Airstream for $3 a day. And that's pretty cool too. So <laughs> it's like, or you can do both and, and be a good person. But I mean, it, um, it has been so cool and I got it back in June. They're actually, they're, they're so popular right now to get these things. They're so hard to get right now. So you can't get them anywhere around here right now. Yeah. It, it's crazy. And I, I joked on, uh, I went, I was, was going to spend this week up at a lake here in Georgia, but this hurricanes moved in and we've got kind of some of the upper bands of rain. So I decided to bail on that, uh, Tuesday, but, um, you know, I was going to try to get a kayak to go out on the lake up there. And I was joking on Facebook the other day, it's probably easier to find a snow leopard right now than to find a kayak. And uh, it's just crazy. The whole industry is completely on fire. And um, just uh, with good with good reason, it's, it's just been unbelievable. We've taken it out every few weeks. And then when we came back from Park City back to Atlanta, uh, at the beginning of the month, we took 12, I think, days on the road to get here. And I um, I used to be skeptical that the moon is made out of cheese. But after learning that Nebraska is entirely made out of corn, I'm starting to believe that maybe the moon is also <laughs> made out of cheese. But I mean, we had a great trip. It's, it was super beautiful. We went through Wyoming uh, and our kids started remote school. So we had remote school. We'd wake them up early in the morning because they were East Coast time and we were in mountain time. So we'd wake up at like 5.45 and they'd start school and I'd start work and then drive in the afternoons to go to the next stop, just, you know, two or three hours of driving. And it was uh, it was amazing. So, yeah, I mean, we have this really unusual opportunity to work remote. And I think it's um, it's forced it's forced an acceleration i actually got a text from a guy i used to work with at adobe it was pretty funny today he said uh what has been the key driver of transformation in your business a ceo b cto c covid19 and the circle was around covid so you know we we've we've been accelerated and uh we've been accelerated into a permanent change and uh, it's cool that you guys are used to it. And our, of course, our businesses, we've been used to a lot of remote work. So it's nice talking to other businesses and people who haven't experienced it as much about how to get it right and how to, um, in many ways, get more out of it than you would get in an office environment. So that's uh, it's a cool topic. And I'm glad you all have been pushing on it for quite some time. Yeah, and a slightly different tangent off of that is, and I'm going to completely um, bastardize it, so I'm not even going to try to paraphrase the tweet you, it was yesterday or the day before, but you talked about, um, I can't even remember how you, you phrased it, but the sense that we only are doing work when we're doing work, and I and it was kind of along the lines of, um, I know you're you're big into your your walkabouts and spending time just thinking that we don't think thinking is work. It was something along the uh, along yeah, those yeah. lines, right? And, and I was that's pissed when I wrote it. <laughs> Were you? <laughs> yeah. And and uh, so maybe give us the backstory on that, but also talk about the fact that we do have more of ability to do that right now where we're at. At, you know, working remotely because we don't have people looking into our cube all day saying, well, what's Evan doing? Does he have some, you know, code editor up writing code that we have the freedom and flexibility, not only of movement and vacations and taking the freedoms of, of, you know, spending less time working, but also when we work, we can now work differently um, and, and, and better. Yeah. Uh, 
let's take this to like a super geeky place for a second. Um, the backstory of that that tweet was once a quarter I spend anywhere from two days to a week uh, and I go somewhere usually into the woods with a hammock and a tent or something like that. Now I've happened to have this airstream, so I took it instead so I could not get rained on quite as much. Um, and I, I kind of go out with nothing but a pencil and a notebook just to think. And I've got some parameters and, you know, some loose parameters in mind about what I ought to be thinking about. You know, I shouldn't be thinking about how to be a bed better Madden EA sports player for the whole week or anything like that. It's probably better to think about important things, but, um, you know, I, I spend this week thinking and it's just, it's totally insane how much you can learn from what's already kind of figured out in your own brain. If you just have this completely, um, uninterrupted thinking time to just kind of, it's almost, it's almost like drilling, right? That you've seen like people bore down into the earth and they drill and then they, they run out a bit and they got to bring it up and add another one. And then you just keep going and going and going as long as you give yourself the time to keep going. And, uh, this week I spent a lot of time thinking about, uh, how to tell stories and explain things that are on the border or even beyond people's comprehension, because what I'm doing with core around psychology and culture, it's not a, a concept that a lot of people, um, want to think about or have thought about or have learned a lot about. So it, it's hard to talk about something that is kind of on the border of people's knowledge or understanding, or might even, they might even have some opinions that are opposed to it. And it's like, how do you, how do you cross that chasm? And that's a key issue in analytics because analytics is way past the boundary of people's comprehension and understanding. When we talk about and answer questions like what's the value of analytics? Why do we do it? What do I get if I invest in it? Those types of things. Those are really complex questions to answer. And there's a few simple answers that sometimes work. And sometimes you have to get into more complicated answers. And it's pretty tough to get into the complicated answers without people thinking like, oh, this person's lost in the weeds. They don't get the big picture. So that was the topic this week. And I posted that tweet because uh, some of my wife's friends and my friends were kind of joking around like, oh, Evan's not working again. He's out there screwing around in the jungle or whatever. And I was like, you know, it's just, it's so counterproductive and I get like the, the funny side of it and I can accept that, but it's just, people don't realize the toll that that kind of negativity takes on themselves and on others when they, when they can't understand that spending time thinking about how to better explain things to people and establish trust and get through difficult things that are on the boundaries of comprehension, when they think that's not work because they're not writing code or getting things done or following up on emails or whatever the the labor they're swinging their axe to to complete is it's just ridiculous and it's unbelievably painfully stupid that people have this narrow classification of work because innovation and technology depend on us getting leaps right i mean if if you if you want to move something in a warehouse right now, we have a forklift. The forklift was invented by a person who took the time to invent the forklift and think about it, who was tired of watching 30 people pick up bags one at a time and walk across the warehouse. So it's just, um, I just was pissed when I wrote it. And I just hope to write things like that, that reflect on my experience or, you know, anybody else that I know that's kind of going through something difficult to how to get to the other side of that difficult thing. Uh, it's super important to go take time to think. And uh, that's where we get the quantum leaps from and supposed to incremental progress. So I, I just, I'm very encouraging of it. I love it when people do it. If anybody has any interest in knowing how to best structure it, you know, we can talk about that and, and what you get out of it and what you should do next. But uh, yeah, I was just pissed that people don't consider it a, a legitimate use of time. It just shows me how hopeless they are in, in, in getting past well, and their most, own and, problems. And, and most people don't. Um, and I, yeah. I think that the system, you know, the system um, brainwashes us in, into thinking that way. Um, several, several jobs back. I, I had a, a, a great boss uh, who spent uh, his entire career working for big consulting agencies 
And um, I, I remember him reviewing my timesheets one week and he came to me, he's like, well, wait a minute, didn't you solve this big problem for this client? I said, yeah. He's like, where is it on the, I don't see the hours for it. I said, well, I was in the shower and I was thinking through it. And, and that's when I came up with the solution for it. He's like, well, then we build them for that. Like, I don't care if you're not sitting at your desk. Like, I don't care if you're out wandering around in a field. If you're thinking about the client's condition and you're coming up with a solution for it, that's what we bill them for. Um, and so it was it was a really great, great lesson for him to reinforce that, especially if you're in the services space and you're making your money off of billable hours. It's not just typing up a document. And when you're thinking about solving the solution, that is what you're you're being paid to do. But, but more than that, I just think that the system brainwashes us has brainwashed us into thinking that there has to be big movements. Um, like the person that's like freaking out and running all over the office and typing frantically into a, I think there's a, a family guy episode where there's a lady trying to schedule a meeting and she's like, got all these devices. She's like I can't, I'm just so busy. I've got all these things going on. And like, really like that's our ideal of someone that works very hard. Um, yeah. And I think, and I think kind of bringing it back to this conversation, why so many managers and companies are fearful of remote is that we've become accustomed to measuring productivity and value generated by people sitting at a desk typing into a keyboard. So well, that's the geeky part, right? So I, I threatened to get geeky earlier and didn't. So here it comes is we have two styles of work the historic style of manufacturing work and the current and future style of intellectual work. And what's interesting is let's kind of like reach over here and grab neuroscience and, and put it in this conversation. Manufacturing work and intellectual work fundamentally use a different part of the human brain. And in manufacturing work, when you've been told what to do and you're going to complete a task over and over again, you get trained on how to screw the bolt down and that's, that's your job and that's overly simplified, but all mechanical work is effectively has a, a, a trained and then used, uh, pattern or motion to it. Right. Uh, the part of the human brain that's being used for, for that manufacturing work is called the hippocampus. The hippocampus records and recalls memory, and it's part of your limbic system. It's part of your basic brainstem, inner brain, not so creative, you know, not so intelligent part of your brain. And you train people by loading information into the, into the hippocampus. And then people remember that information and they complete the steps that they've gone through. And intellectual work uses your prefrontal cortex, which is the highly evolved, uniquely human part of our brain that's responsible for complex logic and understanding and on the right side, creativity and inference and relationships and abstract thought and all that kind of stuff. And culturally, manufacturing companies, the history here is they, the culture is designed to turn off the prefrontal cortex. It's designed to penalize use of the prefrontal cortex. So if people start thinking about a better way of putting the bolt on the screw, we say, that's not what you're paid to do. You're paid to put the bolt on the screw, not think about better ways to put the bolt on the screw. And then you have hybrids of like Toyota, who people who put the bolt on the screw can go out to the floor and submit a suggestion of a better way to put the bolt on the screw. And that helps Toyota to innovate. So that's kind of the, the root of the issue here is the prefrontal cortex and people being thoughtful and creative and logical and looking for new smart ways of doing things was, was a part of the brain that the culture of manufacturing work is specifically designed to shut down. And then when we come over in intellectual work, we're asking people to do intellectual work, but we're still stuck in a lot of these manufacturing work cultures and patterns that are like, I want to look at you being busy, doing work, doing the thing that we trained you to do. And that's how I know you're working. And intellectual work is highly invisible and actually does the opposite. It encourages the use of the prefrontal cortex. It encourages creativity, critical thinking, rethinking things, reimagining things, throwing old things away and disturbing the status quo. And it actually should be designed to penalize the use of the limbic system and the use of the hippocampus. It should be, it should tell people don't get stuck at any point in time in intellectual work. And then you see that, I mean, we see that with a lot of the vendors 
and software companies in our space, they get stuck with old architectures and old APIs and old ways of doing things with old interfaces and old data collection methodologies and all that kind of stuff. And then you say, thank God for teams like Corey Spencer and DTM when they were uh, there and, and working on launch to kind of say, we're going to, we're going to recreate all of this and recreate a whole new way of doing things. And that's going to be a big adjustment for everybody to transition from the old to the new. But that is intellectual work is to make better ways of doing things. So I, I guess a, a two part question um, is, and maybe you don't fight against it. I think history has probably proven that you, you can be as obstinate as you want, but things are going to continue to roll forward. But it feels like we're, we're living in a very obstinate time where we have masses of people and um, groups and people with influence that, that want to keep us stuck in the manufacturing age. Whether they want to or not, I don't think they can hold back the momentum, but they're trying. And I think it's, it's, they, they have the benefit of the fact that it's, it's built into all of our systems from education to employment to it's built in to operate from a, a manufacturing perspective. And I think that time is gone, right? I mean, sure, we're still manufacturing, but it's less jobs for people. A lot of it's becoming automated with robotics. A lot of it's being outsourced. And we can say that that's, you know, crappy for the American worker or the local worker. But I think most economists uh, believe that that's false, that outsourcing that makes higher paying jobs for the people in your locale. So it's better for everybody. Um, wh what do we do? Do we just kind of continue to ride the wave? Or it seems like you're taking a more proactive approach saying, I want to be the one out on the kind of cutting edge to help pull people forward, kicking and screaming as they may be. Yeah. I, and uh, the book that I'm finishing writing kind of talks a little bit about this because it is a mix and um, we do need stable manufacturing to happen for short periods of time, at least. Right. I think what's changed the most is the disruption cycle has changed considerably that you might be able to figure out a way of doing things and then keep doing them that way for 10 years uh, a while ago. And right now, if you keep doing something for 10 years, two years in, a competitor will come start doing it much better and you'll be disrupted. So because the disruption cycle has shortened from, let's just say, 10 years to two years, the reconsideration cycle needs to also shorten from 10 years to two years or maybe even to yearly uh, so that it outpaces the disruption cycle. And you can reconsider the way you do things often enough to catch yourself in time that you don't get disrupted. And then in the meantime, you have focus. And the, I mean, there's a lot of ways of going about it, but in, with my business, the core, we teach people how to, how to build strategy this way and how to build cadence this way so that they have habits in their business and habits in their, their meetings and teams um, that kind of uh, make space for that stuff on purpose rather than, you know, waiting for an emergency to say, oh, we need to have a big meeting to talk about reconsidering things. Uh, and this meeting was unplanned or, or worse yet, we need to reconsider something and it's not really a meeting. It's just a Thursday and somebody's like, we need new marketing technology. We need to reevaluate everything. And you're like, that's going to take like 16, 18 months for you to go through that process. And we just decided to start it 11 minutes ago for no reason. Like that, why can't we just put that on a cadence and say every 18 months or every two years, we reevaluate our technology, whether we need to or not. And that way, anytime we think we need to, we can push it down into that reevaluation window. And every time we don't think we need to, we get the window and go, maybe we should take a look anyhow, because maybe there's more opportunity out there than we're aware of, because we just have been focused on other things. So yeah, what what makes this more or less likely to happen in a business is the psychological composition of the team. So manufacturing thinking is conscientiousness. It's the psychological trait of conscientiousness. And creative, innovative thinking is the psychological trait of openness. So if we have teams that have a better mix of higher openness, not completely open teams across the board, and a better mix of moderate conscientiousness and rather than having high 
or low conscientiousness across the board have a mix, then we can switch modes as a team. We can say, okay, when we're in focus time and execution time for the next three months, we want the conscientious people to kind of hold the carts and, and help us out. And then when we get into reevaluation mode and we hit one of these cadences, we want the help of the open people and the people with more moderate conscientious conscientiousness. And the the desire of the conscientious people in the cadence and in the reevaluation is to get back to work. And I, I I love this Abraham Lincoln quote: "If you give me six hours to chop down a tree, I'll spend the first four hours sharpening the axe." We all know somebody who spends the first four hours trying to chew the damn tree down with their teeth. They don't even find an axe, never mind sharpen it, because they're so prone to action. They're just like, why doesn't everybody else have bloody splintery mouths right next to me right now? Why are, why are you guys all goofing off with your tool sheds? And it's like, because we're smart, because we'll be able to spend the first four hours finding and sharpening axes, and we'll chop the whole tree down in one minute, and you'll sit over there and bleed to death with all the splinters in your face. So that's that's why we're playing around with our tool sheds right now. It's also, it's also, I think, unfortunately, because that person chopping the tree down with their teeth oftentimes gets bonuses in organizations because they're workers. <laughs> yeah, well, that right? that's a, that is exactly right. Because when when someone who's got that manufacturing mindset sees someone doing everything they can and in, enduring pain that is completely their own fault, um, they're they're that they're stuck in that hippocampus and they're like, Oh, that person's working really hard. That person's working super, super hard. And speaking of Twitter, I just <laughs> was saying something earlier, I think maybe today or late yesterday, uh, that building a bridge to nowhere takes just as much labor as building a bridge to somewhere. And, and we sit there and say at the end of like these projects that are just absolutely stupid projects that were a complete waste of time, like the team worked really, really hard on this. And it's like, well, the team worked really hard on building like a giant concrete block that can't be used for any purpose whatsoever. And it's just going to sit there and hold us down. So we could have spent all that time on something extremely smart instead but, um, you know, the team worked really hard, which somehow ascribes tons of value to the giant concrete block that is now drying for the next seven years. Yeah. So psychology, brain study, science, that wasn't, that's not your formal background in education, right? Um, yeah, not entirely. I mean, I was kind of a, an accidental behavioral economist uh, in school. I I had degrees in economics and in engineering, uh, and I had a minor in behavioral science. And I think I was just like, A, a very bad student who kept changing things so that I could blame my grades on finding myself, maybe. Um, but B, uh, these were the things that fascinated me. I mean, the engineering side, I've always been kind of a maker and always been a tinker and wanted to understand how things work. And then the economic side always appealed to me because that was kind of the, the system, the operating system the world is on is an economic operating system. And then you kind of can't look at, at that without really understanding what people are like. And it was always interesting to me that people were different from each other and why do they do things the way they do them and why are under the same sets of rewards and incentives and penalties to people exhibit different behavior and what makes a great person, a brave person do brave things like that was always just very interesting to me. So I did study it. And then I kind of let those ideas and books get really, really dusty for a long time. Uh, I was in finance doing research for, uh, for uh, Wall Street for several years, and then came into digital analytics, thinking that, um, it would have more in common with that than it did. Um, and then just over time, have just realized more and more that the team, how the team is made, what the team is motivated to do, and then the culture that they're in, it's everything. And I think of like these three concentric circles now that psychology is the motivations that we wake up with. It's what we want to do. And it's not limitations. I mean, there are certain counterbalances to psychological strengths. There are weaknesses that come with strengths. 
but too many people worry that like psychology is like a, a, a chemical composition that we can't escape. Like if you're H2O, you'll never be something else. And that's not really, humans are much more interesting than that. But there are motivations that we have. We have motivations for creativity or organization or enthusiasm or, or risk tolerance. Those types of things do exist in each of us. And we wake up with that motivation and that's the innermost circle. And then around that circle, we create a culture. So the innermost circle of motivation is what we wake up wanting to do. The culture is what we feel like we should do. And then the rest of the world outside of that is the actions we take. And if you think about the actions a person takes, the process is born in their motivations and then passes through that outer ring of culture on its way to becoming an action. And you see that I, I, I love it when, and we've all experienced this, you call into a call center because something went wrong. And the person on the call center is like, don't tell anybody I'm going to do this for you, but <laughs> I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to allow you to make this return, but you have to promise that you never tell anybody. Right. And what's happening there is the person's motivation is surviving the culture. And it's a beautiful thing to watch a person's motivation survive the culture because the culture clearly doesn't want that person to allow you to return the product. And they're afraid of the consequences, the cultural consequences, the, the boss, the boss's wrath for doing what they're motivated to do to help you because they're compassionate, but their culture is discompassionate. And as their action flows through that culture, sometimes it survives and sometimes it doesn't. And we certainly see the opposite, which is the person who's like, I'd love to help you, but there's nothing I can do. And you're like, yeah, it, there is something you can do. And their motivation might be to help you, but they're so altered by the culture that that motivation doesn't survive its way through. So that's a, it's a good construct to kind of think about your teams as trying to figure out what culture you need to have to do the things you want to do best in the world and then align that as beautifully as possible with the motivations that sit inside of it so that the culture is amplifying people's desire all the time and you're getting the most out of people as opposed to the culture constantly trying to correct people. And we're seeing that a lot now as companies struggle with design struggle with innovation, struggle with transformation, struggle with this stuff with remote. And it's like, well, let's embrace remote with precisely the wrong set of human motivations to embrace remote. And then we get to see what it looks like, which is like, hey, guys, we're going to have fun and have a taco party on a Zoom, but I'm going to ask everybody what they've been working on for the last six hours. And, you know, what? show me what you're wearing on the bottom half of your body because you need to be dressed professionally head to toe. And like, it's just, you know, it, that's, you just can't get the right actions with the wrong people for long enough for it to be, uh, for it to be harmonious, you know? So yeah. that's kind of the, that's the situation we find ourselves in. So, so speaking of that, um, what should companies, I guess, from those in leadership positions and, and individual contributors, how, how should we be thinking about things differently because you're you're right i i think for for most organizations they're they're simply trying to replicate what happened in the office virtually um and we're we're, we're basically like in the office but in this virtual setting and to jim's kind of point and and how he kicked off this discussion was we're not really taking advantage of this new opportunity we have now for for whatever yeah. reason um, I, I guess as individuals, what should we be thinking about as far as taking advantage of this time? And if we're in a leadership position or to your point, if we're high enough in the organization to help uh, really define deliberately the culture, how should we be thinking uh, about things to take advantage of this opportunity that we have? Yeah, I mean, it'll, it'll help to, to answer that to get more specific. So let's get more specific next. But I would say generally speaking, the way we were working before wasn't the right way of working. So trying to replicate that virtually is just sustaining something that wasn't exactly fitting like a glove to begin with. Uh, and then generally speaking, I'll go back to that idea of cadences that the best, it seems like the best ways of working are cadence driven, which is let's figure out what we're going to do and then let's make the time to go do it effectively. And then let's come back and figure out what we're going to do. And then let's do it. And let's figure out what we're going to do. And let's do it. And there's, 
and those are there's cadences inside of cadences inside of cadences, right? So you have you know you might have a daily cadence and stand up like an agile and scrum, um, and then inside of that daily cadence or that daily cadence sits inside of a surrounding cadence of planning and review, and that cadence sits inside of a prioritization and and bigger design cadence, right? So we have to set those cadences up with a lot of intentionality and that becomes our structure and then teams perform within it. And if people are not performing within it and some people are, then there you go. Like that kind of gives you a pretty clear idea of the compatibility of your team with what you're trying to achieve. And, um, I, I, I actually mentioned this again earlier today. I've been tweeting a lot lately cause I filled my notebook up with a bunch of ideas and now they're spilling their way out on yeah, a Twitter your tweet game is is on fire and, <laughs> and the the depth of some of these threads is like phenomenally good well, I appreciate that it, the one that I, I'm I'm referring to is the the idea that if you want to see people's talents you need to challenge them rather than direct them and that we we have a hard we have a really hard time with teams as leaders to answer your question about leaders we have a really hard time allowing ourselves to see who our teams really are for better or for worse. And, you know, it's like with our kids, right? We can, we can guide every little action. Like if they're shooting a bow and arrow, we can stand there and we can hold their hands and aim it for them and all those kinds of things. And that will minimize the chance that they'll miss, but it will also, because there's all this extra stuff all over them, us trying to guide them, it will also, if they were going to hit a bullseye, it will make it practically impossible for them to hit a bullseye that they could have hit on their own because our eyes and our aim are off to the side. So we're going to actually mess them up potentially if they were really good. If they were really bad, we're going to help them. We're just squeezing the distribution of results to the middle, which means you're you're eliminating failure, but you're also eliminating the top end of performance. And as leaders, when we sit there and we help them aim their bow and arrow like that, it's exactly the same thing that we are preventing them from doing a worse job. And sometimes that's helpful, uh, but we're also limiting the, the excellence that they might bring to the table that we guiding them don't even see. So I prefer to kind of give people the bow and arrow and then let them shoot a few times on their own. And then we get us get to see what people's talent level is as opposed to seeing what people's or, or controlling that, that talent level and, and guiding them too much. And once we understand that, then we can start to tailor how we work. We can, we can allow people with these incredible strengths to run and trust that they can do things better than they, than they could if we were guiding them the whole time. Yeah. So I, I guess that is a big assumption that leaders care for the individual development of their, their team members above and beyond, which I think is speaking about working the wrong way. I think what you described just, that's not how corporate is, is built. We, we tend to manage to the lowest common denominator. So I think in a corporate world, they would actually hear you say that and say, yeah, we're, we're okay with them not hitting the bullseye. Our job is to manage to those that would, you know, miss the target completely and hit someone in the other range, right? We, we have to yeah. flip that mentality. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's right. And I think just conversations like this can help plant some of the seeds that lead that way. Um, you know, I love seeing all the people that can't hit the target after trying 10 times and then we get them to go work for our competitors and help, help them to miss all the targets uh, instead of... That was one of your tweets too, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, there's nothing like, listen, everybody's, a, everybody, every human being has, has great value and great potential, but we also have time horizons to deal with in business. And sometimes we need to generate results now and we need the optimal team to generate results now. And sometimes people by skill or by psyche are in a, are in a, are in a subtractive mindset. And every minute they spend on your product or on your marketing or on your culture is making it worse right now. And it's just because that's where they are today. They're just not ready to be additive. And we want the subtractive people to be subtracting from our competition's success, not from our success. 
So nobody needs to go hungry. Nobody needs to lose jobs or anything like that. Uh, they just need jobs somewhere else. And until they get out of their subtractive patterns, they'll stay somewhere else. And when they're in an additive pattern, um, then we can bring them here. And there's, there's a lot of people who are in very temporary subtractive patterns. And that's what we do to develop our teams is we say, listen, hey, you know, that's not the right way of doing it. That's not the level of quality we're shooting for. Uh, that's not the right style of communicating. And they're eager listeners and they're coachable and they're on their way from going from being amateurs who make lots of mistakes to experts who make many fewer mistakes. And if you've got an amateur in your business who's under, who is actively becoming an expert, then you keep them. That's awesome. That's momentum. There's inertia to that movement. But if you have an amateur in your business who insists on remaining an amateur, they need to go amateur up your competitor's company instead of your company because that means that all that competitor's company's customers will come to you and their good employees will come to you and everybody wins. All the people who are amateurs go get paid to be amateurs and then the customers are happy, the employees are happier, everybody's happier centering on the healthier, more productive, positive, additive business. So it seems like there potentially is a lot of trust issues that, that need to be resolved just in general, but I think specifically is being highlighted with remote work. It's it's the thing that we hear from a lot of companies and managers that are so paranoid about remote is that if we don't see our employees, we don't know what, what they're working on. Um, I, again, I think that this helps to further entrench that, that point. If I'm not sitting at my desk typing in the into the keyboard i'm not working um what what can we do to address that um as individuals how can we become more comfortable in to again to jim's point how can we take better advantage of this this time um but also be i think uh, a little bit um cognizant of the fact that a lot of people are scared working remote they are fearful for you know maybe losing their job or being pegged as an underperformer because now i'm not seen as sitting in my desk hammering out code all the time and and to take an extreme example so for some reason there's this alignment with evan telling me to go for more walks and all the stoic content i follow telling me to go take more walks and i have been and i'm i'm finding it extremely valuable um but how does the employee that is fearful take advantage and be able to do those things because you you know you're kind of i think joking a little bit but maybe not so about the the lunch on zoom or now we have all these cool software pieces to make us feel like we're more in the office together but it's really a guise to like hide the fact that we're using it to snoop on you to make sure you're actually sitting at your desk working you know it's i i can imagine it's a tough spot for for people where they're like yeah i get this like this would be great to be able to take advantage of these things but all i hear from my you know, my management is, well, you better not be doing laundry during the day. You better not be going out wandering around in, you know, the hills during the day. It's it's time for work. We sit and we work, we sit at our desk and we type on our keyboard. That's work. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are like kind of fantasy solutions that I think <laughs> about uh, to this sometimes. Yeah. Um, I mean, if you're, if I, if I was somebody's dad, um, and I'm going to pretend to be older with white new balances on, you know, that stage dad. Well, what like, stage dad is that? That's, that's up there, man. Yeah. You, yeah. you, you've yeah. got, you've got working kids and, uh, you've got your nice new balances to go out and you got your, your ones that used to be nice to mow the lawn with. <laughs> um, there's a video I have to send you to after this. Yeah. I was just thinking about it's just it. A, yeah, the guys open up the up. lawnmower. Just, yeah. Yeah. Well, no, the guy's got, got his new lawnmower. He's like, it's this, it's this. And then he pulls out a pair of New Balance. And he's like, wow, they oh, actually give amazing. them to you with the lawnmower? So uh, I would love to see a lot more people quitting and changing jobs. I mean, I really would. I mean that from the from the bottom of my heart that there is not enough walking going on, particularly in our industry and in analytics. There are so many people who just tolerate so much bullshit um, and they're worried how they're going to look and they're managing to optics and they're, they're just, 
it's like, it's painful. And the problem with that is that there are really, really good companies out there that would love to hire these people, would love to have them on their staff. And we've been, I've been that company before. I've been the company hiring lots of analytics people saying, come work here. This is a good place. And they're like, oh, I just wouldn't look right if I didn't have two years in my resume in this role that I'm in right now. And I'm just like, that is just the dumbest shit I've ever heard in my life. And it's it's all optics, optics, optics. And what it, what results is that the you know, the old adage of vote with your feet, it's failing. It's happening too slowly and companies don't realize we are a bad place to be and we need to change. They think, well, we're a good place to be because nobody's quitting. And that means that we must be doing things right when in fact they're doing things wrong. So the companies like the, the like you, Jason, who wants to hire somebody or me who wants to hire somebody, um, we lose out because that talent is too worried about optics to make a mutually beneficial decision. And then the other company loses out because they have cancer, but they're not experiencing symptoms. So they just kind of keep living and the cancer keeps growing. And then eventually the cancer becomes a real problem. And then they, they kind of would struggle that much more to fix it eventually, whenever they do realize they have a problem and end up being blockbuster or something like that. So, um, that that's what I'd like to see. I'd love to see. And of course, right now it's a difficult time to quit, but it's not a difficult time to hunt jobs, to go look and find better companies. You should, you should know, um, what your alternatives are and you should feel as, um, as valuable as you are. And so few people in our industry feel as valuable as they are, particularly the really good ones who are kind of stuck in these roles and working with teams that don't appreciate them. I mean, analytics is like a pitcher and catcher model, right? An analyst is going to pitch valuable work around its organization. And unless the catcher catches the ball, then the pitch was worthless. And there's so few companies that have good catchers in them. So if you're a great pitcher, you've got to find a company that has great catchers, or you might actually be creating negative ROI. You might actually People might say, like, why is, there, why is this guy throwing all these balls at everybody? Nobody wants any of these, these baseballs to hit him in the side of the head. And it's like, well, you're supposed to catch them. That's the relationship we have here. So it's just we're in, a, we're in a tough industry. And we're in one that will accelerate its maturity and accelerate its quality of life dramatically if people stop tolerating all this crap. So... Yeah, bringing that back to the remote thing, if you're worried about what it might look like to go on a walk, um, two things I might do. Number one, I'd be looking for a job where you're not worried about going on a walk. But number two, um, be intentional and completely unapologetic about your intentions to go on a walk. And, and start with that. Tell your boss, hey, every Tuesday and Thursday at 11, uh, here's all the things that pile up in my mind and my schedule uh, that require some thinking time. And I want to let you know that at 11 o'clock before lunch on Tuesdays and Thursdays, I'm going to go on an hour long walk where I can sort through these things. And to demonstrate that that's valuable, both to myself and to you, I'm going to write up a little summary of what I come up with and what problems I solve and whether or not it's working and how well it's working and whether I'd recommend other people start doing it. So let's call it an experiment. Will you give me the latitude to conduct this experiment? And if they say no, then go find a different job. And if they say yes, then show, as you should, to yourself and to them that the time is very well spent. And, um, you know, there's other cool neuroscience that's associated with going on a walk lots of cool neuroscience that's associated with it that really does prove how valuable it is and how it clears your mind and getting underneath a tree canopy changes, uh, you know, chemistry levels in your brain and allows you to focus more and, and be more positive and increases cognitive ability. And if you've gotten upset, uh, the, the feeling of being angry and frustrated is actually norepinephrine in your bloodstream. That's adrenaline. And adrenaline reduces cognitive ability by almost 30%. So 
So if you go on a walk and you reduce the adrenaline that's coursing through your veins, causing you to be uh, frustrated and angry, you will actually come back 30% more intelligent than when you left on that walk. So it's, and you want people to be intelligent. You want them to make fewer mistakes and, and do fewer dumb things impulsively because they're upset. And there are a lot of companies that make damn sure that every employee in their whole company has got a bunch of norepinephrine coursing through their veins by 10 or 10.30 a.m., making sure like, blah, 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 those early morning meetings, make sure everything gets done. And it's like, you just made everybody stupid for the whole rest of the day. Why did you do that? <laughs> I'm excited to read your new book. It seems like if it's a culmination of all of this content and research and study you've done, it's it's going to be a, a good read. I, I, I guess we're probably going a little off track here late into the conversation, but like, what are you reading? What are you studying? Your, I mean, obviously you have a deep interest in kind of psychology and neurosciences. Um, what what are you reading? What, how are you getting so smart about uh, this? I, I started off reading a lot of not so smart stuff and then you get into progressively smarter, but more excruciating things to read. So lots of like studies and scientific journals and National Institute of Health reports and uh, medical journals and research papers and, uh, you know, just lots and lots of stuff because it's, it's kind of an interesting thing. Like you'll, whenever you cite psychological research and, and there are legitimate counterpoints to, to psychological research, there is a lot of research that has flaws in it and can't be repeated and things like that. But a lot of people use the idea that some research having flaws in it means that the entire body of of all research ever done all has equivalent flaws in it which is just um you know i i guess you could return the favor to the person saying that if they if your logic and this is this flawed then maybe your logic in every part of your life is equally flawed to this like <laughs> just i mean it, it's a reasonable uh way to return their serve i guess but um it, what's interesting about it is when most people criticize this stuff, they come up with like, there's a great um, book that was written called obedience to authority and, and written by Stanley Milgram. And it studies, it's the study where the, the two people would participate and one would electrocute the other. And they, the test person would keep telling them to up the, up the voltage and the people were screaming and all this stuff. A lot of people have heard about it. It's, it's worth checking it out, but effectively the, the person that was in the study was asked to sit down, ask a person a question. If they get the question wrong, they give them a shock and they keep upping the voltage as the questions went on. The person receiving a shock was an actor and they were just trying to test how far will this person go when there's an authority figure telling them to continue the experiment. And 86% of people in that experiment go all the way to the finish line with somebody screaming in agony, begging for their life, and they interview everybody afterwards and ask them, why did you do it? And they're like, it wasn't me. I was just doing what I was told to do. And that's a concept called agency. They, they claim no independence in their ability to act. And the majority of people literally didn't feel like it was them delivering the shock. It felt like it was like they were the arm of the researcher and they didn't have any choice, even though clearly they did. So really interesting study. But when people criticize it, they say, well, well, they didn't consider this. They didn't consider that. It's like, no, these are like insanely intelligent people doing a multi-year study. If you think that you thought of the thing they didn't think of in four seconds, you're wrong. Like they, <laughs> these are very sophisticated researchers. And we try to throw those caveats out there to undermine the research pretty often. Uh, and that's troublesome, you know, that we don't give these people we don't, we don't bother to read the research before we criticize it and throw it out. And that's really what's getting in the way of us understanding it. And then admittedly, it's an imperfect science. I mean, everything, brain surgery is an imperfect science. If it was perfect, we'd get it right all the time. And brain surgeons get it right a percentage of the time. So it's just, it's unrealistic to think that anything short of perfect is garbage. And that we see that all the time in analytics and the question with data is whether or not the data is directionally useful and correct more often than it isn't. 
And if you could win 51% of the time in Las Vegas, then Las Vegas wouldn't exist. The reason it exists is because you win 49% or less of the time or 49.999% or less. Some, something, the odds are not in your favor. And data that gets it right 50.000001% of the time is unbelievably valuable data. And this data is way more right than 50.1% of the time. Yeah. yeah. So it's extremely useful data. And we as analysts have to always be on the lookout for not the perfection of information, but the usefulness and applicability of information that shifts the odds in our favor. And this information is unbelievably odds shifting. I love it. All right. So we're, we're probably close to time and uh, we probably should wrap up. I mentioned your book. Do we have a date on when your book is coming out? And when it comes out and I read it, can we have you back on to do a little uh, review Q&A on it? That would be awesome. Yeah, of course. I don't know when it comes out. Um, I am finishing my edits this weekend, uh, about 30% done with kind of final draft edits. It's it's done being written, but there's parts that I go back and read, and I'm like, ah, that's it's never that's gonna not be perfect. It. <laughs> well, <laughs> they, these are these are the these are the things that need to be improved. Yeah, so uh, we'll be. I've got a publisher, um, but I I think the opportunity exists to shop with other publishers and kind of see um, because the book it covers a lot of ground it covers the ground of understanding problem complexity and deconstructing problems it covers the ground of uh understanding psychology and interpersonal dynamics it covers the ground of cadences like we talked about today uh culture skill sets things like that and it's just trying to kind of surround the problem of intelligence and compress it inwards from all angles at the same time uh, so it's probably, I don't know, we'll see how it does. I hope it, I hope it helps some people, but it, it, it there's a lot of, it's like a bank vault that you have to turn multiple keys in order to get inside. That's what intelligence is. You can't, there's no one trick. You have to get all these different components right and working together. And then you can turn all the keys and you get something pretty incredible. Well, I think that's going to probably be your biggest barrier because lots of people don't, don't want that. Right. That's why the late night, you know, buy this program for twenty nine ninety five, and you're going to become a millionaire or so, <laughs> yeah. so popular, so, right? It's like, people don't I'm going to sell real estate after work. the book fails. <laughs> yeah. But you know, I mean, it's, it is my disadvantage for sure. Um, but I, I think big picture it's their disadvantage because yeah. they're going to be in competition who, with people who might take it seriously and yeah. might try to become intelligent and not focus on the, elimination of mistakes to get mediocrity, but they're going to be competing with people that are trying to eliminate mediocrity to get excellence. And you can't, if you are trying to get mediocrity, you cannot compete with someone who's trying to create excellence. It just, for sure. it, it isn't going to happen. For sure. Well, awesome conversation as always, Evan. Um, and definitely look forward to you coming back. And next time, I think I need to raise my chair because... I was, I feel like, there we go. I should have done that at the beginning because I felt like really short compared to you. No, I All right, know. take two. Now I feel Start like, over let's again. Re, let's redo this whole conversation. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, uh, this has been a, a great conversation and a lot to think about. And as always, I think you share a lot of valuable content. I love, I love the new uh, energy behind your content sharing on, on Twitter, um, LinkedIn. It's extremely valuable stuff. I'm not sure what... Uh, kind of lit the fire under you, but definitely keep it up. Um, cause I'm, I'm finding a lot of value with it. I'm, I'm trying to share it in my networks and hopefully you're seeing the, some of the feedback there where people are like, this is awesome. This is the best thing I've read today. So um, yeah, I appreciate keep it. Keep it up. Yeah, it's, it's good stuff. The fire just burns. Um, because I, I just, I, gosh, I just love good people. Yeah. And good people are, handing the keys over to people who don't necessarily have great intentions and that then they're misusing that that power and i want good people to feel uh understood and heard and validated and then and, and maybe emboldened 
to uh, to not hand the keys over quite so often, you know, to 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 demand that they get listened to. And um, and that's that's what makes us smarter is to listen to the people who really deeply want to get it right and not listen so much to the people who just want to be right. Mm, I love that. Well, that is a great way to wrap it up again. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been an awesome, awesome conversation. Yeah, likewise, guys. Thanks for having me. Yep. Definitely. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of 33 Tangents. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate and review the show on your favorite podcast aggregator so others can find us. If you would like to reach us, you can do so by emailing podcast at 33sticks.com or on the web at 33tangents.33sticks.com. 33 Tangents is a production of 33 Sticks, an analytics boutique.